Hi, Professor Stanley here, and I am recording a podcast today on the topic of depressive and bipolar disorders. So this is going to have a lot of content. Um, You know, depression and bipolar are two of the most common things that you might see within hospitalized patients and within patients that you are encountering in a med surge setting as well. So we're going to start out by talking about mood, and this is where the book starts, and it talks about mood being a pervasive emotional tone that profoundly influences one's outlook and perception of self, the others, and the environment. Mood states can be many and various and may include sadness, depression, sorrow, joy, happiness, elation, passion, and pleasure. And it can be influenced by a wide variety of biological, psychological, sociological, cultural, and spiritual experiences. So here's a good example. You know, as we go through the course of our day, we may have some very big mood fluctuations. For example, when we get up in the morning, we may kind of feel a sense of dread as we're, you know, thinking about going into work. And then we get into work and we find out we went and won an award. And then we have a lot of joy. And then, you know, we sit in our office and we work for a while and we study too long or whatever. And we start to feel somewhat weary and and maybe we find out that we have uh, failed a test or something like that. And then we might feel sad. But anyway, regardless of these different swings that occur throughout the day in your mood states, there's something called euthymic mood states, which is mood in the normal range as opposed to extremes such as depression or mania. What that means is that most people stay somewhere in the middle. They don't become very, very depressed or very, very manic as someone with depressive or bipolar disorder would do. Now, on the other hand, mood disorders refer to sustained emotional states that are a departure from an individual's usual functioning and that cause a significant impairment in social or vocational functioning. And here again, just like many of our other things, it has to do with the intensity and duration of the problem. And these tend to be very cyclical in nature. Now, there are a couple of broad categories of mood disorders we're going to go through today. And those are the depressive mood disorder and bipolar mood disorder. And as I've already said, these are pretty, um, you know, common disorders and so nurses will regularly encounter individuals that have these disorders and we need to develop skills to be able to identify and assess and manage individuals who have these types of disorders. So this is an important lecture because it's an important concept. Now in each of these with both bipolar individuals and with depressive disorder there is an increased risk for suicide and you know you may think of bipolar more toward the manic end but the truth of the matter is is that between 25 and 50 percent of people with bipolar disorder will attempt suicide at least once in their lifetime and as many as 20 percent will die by suicide. Interestingly, mood disorders are relatively high in the older adult population, but they're much less likely to seek care for mental disorders. And of course, the most prevalent mood disorder among older adults is major depression. However, persistent depressive disorder, dysthymia, adjustment disorder with depressed mood, depression attributable to medical conditions are also common. Now, the lifetime prevalence for mood disorders in adolescents who are age 13 to 18 is 14%. That's huge. And they have a 4.7% lifetime prevalence of a severe mood disorder that will affect their quality of life and functioning. 
And you know what? A lot of these things, because of the way that um, our society is structured, you know, a lot of people, especially in rural Oklahoma, never have contact with healthcare providers, hardly at all. And because of the way our society is structured, um, you know, with us mainly seeing primary care providers and maybe not getting screened for mental illnesses, many mental disorders are going undiagnosed and untreated. And even when they are diagnosed and treated, sometimes it can be difficult to see someone, difficult to get the referral, difficulty in paying for specialty care, all of these things. So only about a third of patients who are diagnosed at least minimally receive adequate treatment. So only a third. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Okay, so let's go ahead and go on. Um, we're going to go to the section marked depressive disorders. And depression is a feeling of sadness and worthlessness. And it's accompanied usually by a decreased, increase, decreased interest in activities and a diminished concentration. We've already talked about how they're at increased risk for suicide, patients that suffer from depression, and that this is the most prevalent mood disorder among older adults. Major depressive disorder is also believed to be the most common of the mood disorder, and it could, can occur in a single episode, but usually it will recur at some time in someone's life. So one or more symptoms need to be present without manic or hypomanic features in order for a diagnosis of major depressive disorder to be made. I'm going to go over some of those things in the table on major depressive disorder here in a few minutes. Okay, so the hallmark of this disorder is, of course, an extremely depressed mood and anhedonia, which is a loss of interest or pleasure in nearly all activities. There's also um, dysphoric mood, which means it's unpleasant mood state with sadness, anxiety, or irritability. So that can occur too with major depressive disorder. Now let me let you know that nothing seems to help these people who have this feel better and they have little ability to change the behaviors that they are doing, creating a feeling of helplessness, hopelessness, isolation, alienation, and perpetual despair. Vegetative symptoms is a word that we use to describe symptoms such as sleep, appetite disturbance, decreased energy, psychomotor symptoms like agitation and psychomotor retardation, sexual dysfunction, decreased concentration or capacity, lack of pleasure, guilty rumination, and suicidal ideation. Those are known as vegetative symptoms. Many individuals also report somatic complaints like pain, and they may actually present for care with pain as their primary symptoms and minimize the mood symptoms. Now, pain and depression do have a reciprocal relation in relationship in that as each one heightens the severity of the other. So as pain increases, the depression tends to increase. As depression increases, the pain tends to increase. If we can get the depression or the pain to decrease, then the other one will decrease as well. Individuals with somatic symptoms experience greater social and vocational dysfunction than those that present for depressive disorder without somatic symptoms. Now, I will let you know that depression is believed to be caused by complex interaction between genetics and the environment. They have not isolated the gene, but they believe that it may be a polygenetic sort of factor where it exists on multiple genes. And also, adverse life events that we've already gone over in one of the previous lectures during critical brain development periods may also help to develop depression. There can be some things that we can do to help with this. For example, primary prevention is focused on improving the family functioning, especially 
in families where we are already dealing with adversity and increased and giving that increased attention to at-risk populations can help prevent these mood disorders. Secondary prevention is screening for the disorder. So making sure that um, primary care physicians and nurse practitioners who are seeing patients are familiar with the tools necessary to screen. And so screening for them and then counseling individuals who are in at-risk groups and taking measures to reduce harm from negative events. So if you know a family is going through divorce, for instance, to go ahead and kind of, you know, put them on the track with a counselor so that they can start to prevent and stave off some of those possible side effects of mood disorders. Tertiary prevention is collaborate care programs for management, home-based strategies to reduce depression among older adults. So basically, community-based strategies to increase the resources that are available to all kinds of people, like the the ones who are living in their home and homeless adults as well. All right, let's go ahead and move on to the next slide. We are going to talk about some of those physiological mechanisms behind the depressive disorders, such as the neurotransmitters. So I want you to know, and if you've already listened to my podcast, you probably have a pretty good grasp of this fact, but medication therapy typically focuses on the neurotransmitters, you know, targeting serotonin or dopamine. Um, the neurotransmitters are chemicals that allow the transmission of signals from neuron to neuron across a synaptic gap. Dysregulation of the neurotransmitter system has been implicated for many mood disorders, and these neurotransmitters include serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, histamine, and the inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA, and acetylcholine and glutamate are now thought to be involved as well. Dysregulation of the system causes the symptoms and physical pain that is associated with depression. Now, we talked about this a little bit during the child lecture, but stress or traumatic events during childhood, remember they're called the ACEs, those events during childhood or adolescence are thought to cause persistent changes to the HPA neuroendocrine circuits. Remember, that's our fight or flight circuit that occurs. We have some Khan Academy videos up there on it, if you've forgotten. And this will result in actual structural changes in the limbic system, especially in the hippocampus. I think that one of our Khan Academy videos hit on that as well. And remember, this is the source of emotion and mood regulation. So it increases the vulnerability to mood and anxiety disorders. So it's believed to work by an overstimulation of the stress response, releasing stress hormones such as cortisol, which then in turn causes us to heighten stress sensitivity. Okay. Let's go on and also talk about our circadian rhythm. Now, whether the circadian rhythm contributes to depression or is a side effect of depression, there are effects to the circadian rhythm. For example, most people who are, who are reporting mood disorders, especially depression, do report insomnia with early morning awakening, and that is a common complaint. Or they may also um, report hypersomnia. They do report poor sleep quality, and residual sleep disturbance is a predictor of relapse to a new depressive episode. So let's say that you get your patient feeling a little bit better, but they're still having the sleep problems. That is a predictor of the possibility that another depressive episode will occur. So you can see how there are changes in their circadian rhythm. Okay, 
other potential factors that may also be part of this depressive cycle that has that goes on is a trait that they call learned help helplessness. Learned helplessness is a maladaptive coping style and it's based in the belief that stressful life events are uncontrollable. And they actually go through, um, I think it was an experiment. I was going to see if I could find this real quick and I'll tell you about the experiment. It was by Seligman and he observed that dogs that were given repeated electrical shocks without hope of escape eventually became helpless, gave up, and developed an animal equivalent of depression. So if you have somebody who has like developed this coping style where they've just given up, they decide that they are unable to change events or circumstances and they give up, give up on the idea of ever changing it. And because they give up, they experience discouragement, hopelessness, and despair. Many people who suffer from depressive disorder have a depressive attributional style. And this is where the, personal attrib- the person attributes negative events to personal failings. Um, and this is persistent, you know, like they, they believe bad things will happen and it's also pervasive and pervasive and it extends across a wide variety of issues. So you have somebody who is, you know, convinced that something's going to go wrong, that they're failing. They believe bad things are going to happen and in many areas that they're not life, not just one area. Then you have people that have a negative cognitive style which are skewed beliefs about themselves, their environment, and their future, also known as negative pessimistic thinking. Some will have a deep-seated negative life view based on cognitive distortions rather than a reality. Remember, this is where the thought processes aren't based on reality, but they think something is real anyway. And they may exhibit irrational thinking exemplified by negative automatic responses. And the book gives the example, and I think it's a good one, about a really pretty woman who believes that she's unattractive. So because she believes she's unattractive, she doesn't try to meet men due to a fear of rejection because she says no one will ever like me anyway. But then she also has this arbitrary inference where, say that she does finally go out with a man, but then he has to cancel the date. She thinks, well, I knew that this was true. I knew nobody would ever like me anyway. And so she continues to hold to this view that she is unattractive and therefore can't find anybody. And then she overgeneralizes. And so she's rejected by this one suitor. And she takes it as a confirmation of her thoughts that no one will ever want her. And I want you to know that there is hope for people that are doing this. There is cognitive behavioral therapy. And when people engage in cognitive behavioral therapy, it can help them to restructure their negative thoughts and their attitudes and beliefs. Also, I want you to know that people that experience a great deal of social stressors are more likely to experience depression. So debt, legal issues, unemployment, discrimination, all of these things could be things which would cause somebody to experience depressive symptoms. Okay. Now let's go on to some cultural things that I wanted to talk about. And I think I've already told you about one of my young ladies who came to the union who was from a Middle Eastern culture. And because she was from this particular Middle Eastern culture, they did not really understand depression. Nobody really talked about depression. It wasn't something that she had background in. So she kept coming in with those somatic complaints. She had spent a year going from doctor to doctor to doctor to try to figure out what was wrong with her. And finally, we figured out it was depression. We started treating it, and she started feeling better. Well, Hopi Indians, Tahitians, Nigerians, and some Asian cultures apparently have no appropriate language at all to discuss depression, and this may result in alternative cultural language, you know, as a way to express depression. 
In Hispanic cultures, depression will frequently have a somatic presentation and a lower preference for pharmacology. So because of this, um, it may lead to difficulty engaging that person in their care. And after symptoms you know, are gone, they probably aren't going to be likely to continue on an antidepressant. Some African immigrants recently have, tried, have tended to believe in magic as the source of their symptoms. Some people, um, this is the spiritual factor, they may question the meaning of life and why this is happening to them. They're experiencing a life crisis that calls into question the purpose and meaning of life. So one thing that has been identified to be um, really of help to people as they're recovering from all kinds of mental illness, not just depression, is that there is a psychological benefit to a belief in God and afterlife and fate. And that faith is often a source of crisis or comfort in crisis and in illness. And that spiritual guidance and assurance are important during crisis. So there's our cultural spiritual factors that may affect depression. Let's go on to some, to some specific disorders. So first of all, as promised, we're going to talk about major depressive disorder, sometimes known as unipolar depression. It is believed to be the most common of the mood disorders, and it may occur as an isolated single episode, but most people will experience recurrence at some time during their life. Of course, the essential feature of major depressive disorder is one or more depressive episodes without a history of mania or hypomanic episodes. So the DSM-5 has two hallmark criteria for major depressive episode. The first is an extremely depressed mood or a loss of interest and pleasure, uh, a loss of interest or pleasure in almost all activities. And as you know from our previous weeks in our discussion, this is a term known as anhedonia. Anhedonia is an extremely important symptom. It implies not only the inability to experience pleasure, but also the inability to experience all positive feelings. Because nothing is capable of making the individual with anhedonia feel better, he or she has little ability or motivation to change the behavior. And this creates a sense of hopelessness and helplessness, as you might imagine. And they also may experience isolation, alienation, and perpetual despair. Okay, so let's go through some of the criteria for major depressive disorder as outlined by the DSM. The DSM says five or more of the following symptoms have been present during the same two-week period, so it's a pretty short period, and represent a change from previous functioning. At least one of the symptoms is either a depressed mood or a loss of interest or pleasure. So there are those two that we already talked about, right? So here the does not include symptoms that are clearly attributable to another medical condition. So here's where we start. Depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day, as indicated by either subjective report or observations made by others. Marked diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day, nearly every day. Significant weight loss when not dying or weight gain, a change of more than 5% of body weight in a month, or decreased or increased appetite nearly every day. Insomnia or hypersomnia. Psychomotor agitation or retardation. Fatigue or loss of energy. Feelings of worthlessness. So you see that a lot of these things are things we've already gone over. So I'd encourage you to finish reading that book on that table in your reading that table on the page in your book, which is page three twenty nine. Okay, 
Let's go ahead and move on to persistent depressive disorder. Persistent depressive disorder is also known as dysthymia, and it shares many of the same symptoms as major depressive disorder, but they're often less severe, yet they're more pervasive, meaning they last a lot longer. So they're of a duration that the individual is such a duration that the individual frequently doesn't even remember when they started. So they may not remember a time when they ever weren't depressed. The symptoms may be atypical in presentation. Um, individuals may describe hypersomnia rather than insomnia. Um, let's see what else about this one. Uh, there's a long duration. and it, It's really characterized by a low-grade and protracted depressive state. Some of the characteristics that will occur with it are low energy, fatigue, low self-esteem, poor concentration, and hopelessness. And it's a low-grade and protracted depressive state that often has an early onset in childhood, adolescent, or early adulthood. And symptoms are usually milder, but nonetheless disabling. Next, we have a category that the book calls other depressive disorders, which include premenstrual dysphoric disorder, minor depressive episodes or episodes that do not meet full criteria, recurrent brief episodes of depression, post-psychotic depressive episodes or depression that is believed to be associated with a psychotic illness, and situations in which the clinician is unable to determine whether the depression is primary, which means it's due to a medical condition, or substance-induced. So sometimes substance can induce depressive disorders as well. And just a few more things about depression. It does co-occur often with other psychiatric and substance use disorders and does have a lot of overlap with anxiety disorder, even in the diagnostic criteria. And there is an increase in depression, as I've already said many times, with, mental, with medical illnesses. And because it is so pervasive and there are so many people that have depression and because it can be disabling and, and people aren't screening for it, we need to be very sensitive to screening for depression, especially in those who have other medical or mental illnesses and pain disorders. Because remember, pain increases with depression. Early age at onset in depression is associated with occurrence in adulthood and effects, in the effects between 2.8 and 5.6% of children, depending upon the age. Women are more likely to have depression, especially during hormonal transition periods. You may be familiar with the postpartum period, but also it can occur premenstrual, menopause, and with pregnancy. So anyway, this is just a bit about the depressive disorders. We're probably going to go on now at this time, and I would encourage you to read those pages because I didn't go over them really a lot, but 330, 331, 332. Let's go ahead and talk about older adults now. We've already talked about how it is not recognized and not treated many times in the elderly, and they tend to focus on their physical problems and regularly miss the problem of depression. So they may not, may not even be being screened for it, but as we've already learned with our suicide lecture, that doesn't mean that you know, their rates of suicide and their rates of depression don't go up. Some estimates think that rates of depression among older adults living in a nursing home may be 14 to 42 percent. Depression is not a normal part of aging. I want to say again, depression is not a normal part of aging and should not be viewed as a natural consequence associated with life changes that accompany aging, such as retirement and the loss of a spouse. There are risk factors for late life depression, late life depression, 
such as female gender, social isolation, lower socioeconomic status, multiple medical comorbidities, especially pain, because we've already talked about that one, cardiovascular neurological disorders, past history of depression, and functional impairment. And personal loss, you know, loss of a spouse, a home, friends, and dependents, all increases the burden of depressive symptoms and the risk for disability. Um, so there are many things that can cause older adults to experience depression. And incidentally, when someone has a depressive illness, it may hasten their functional decline and increase the risk for hospitalization and non-adherence to treatment. It definitely reduces the quality of life for these older adults and for their families too. Some researchers even have identified depression as what they describe as a harbinger of dementia, meaning that they're more likely to get dementia. Now, as I previously mentioned, you know, older adults do have a lot of somatic complaints, and the somatic complaints oftentimes may distract a clinician from an accurate diagnosis of depression. Psychotic symptoms can be present in the form of persecutory guilt or delusions or hallucinations. Depression may also present as cognitive impairment in an older adult, so somebody might think that it's dementia, but in reality, it's something known as pseudodementia. Although, I will tell you, effective treatments are available. Several studies indicate that relapse rates are high in older adults and that fewer than 50% of older adults with major depressive disorder will achieve remission with first-line antidepressant pharmacotherapy. So this may mean that older patients need to have a combined pharmacological and psychotherapeutic approach of all people as more than other patient populations. And as well as, you know, attending to the sociocultural part of the isolation they're experiencing and bereavement issues because there may be some grief associated with loss of a loved one, loss of social roles, transitioning in social roles. So there can be many things that can be a problem. So the implication for our nursing practice, of course, is that we must, must, must screen for suicide. We've already talked about that because older adults tend to use more immediate lethal means and they are more likely to be successful. Also, we need to be sure and screen for low-grade depressive symptoms. Even though these symptoms may not meet the criteria for a major depressive episode, they're nonetheless impairing and we can do something to help them and it can have a profound impact on their quality of life. We need to be mindful of sleep disturbances because sleep does change as you get older and depression following certain neurological disorders such as a stroke or you know other things like that. So basically, we need to really work with our aging population to try to work on some of these things that may be contributors to depression. There is a special form that has been developed for geriatric populations called like the geriatric depression scale. So some of these things you can use. I did want to let you know too, and I didn't see it really mentioned very well in the book, but many times when we give antidepressants to our geriatric population, a lot of the medications may be contraindicated and they may not be properly absorbed in the digestive tract following the normal patterns of absorption. And so, as such, they may be able to build up a toxicity level or they may be less effective. There are many things that can happen with our older adult population. So I will let you know that for when it comes to depression, this is a time when you really might want to consider ECT therapy for an older adult that's struggling with depression because ECT does tend to work much more quickly, quickly and does not have the uh, problems with absorption as it is with antidepressants in older adults. 
Now let's quickly go back through the table on 16.2 on page 329 of your book, which talks about clinical features of depression. I wanted to go through some of these because these are things that you may see um, as terms and you may not be familiar with. First one I wanted to talk about is catatonia. Catatonia is a total absence of movement. The individual's muscles are waxy and semi-rigid. They have mutism. They have um, echolalia, echopraxia. What that means is that with echolalia, you'll have a meaningless repetition of another person's spoken word as a symptom of a psychiatric disorder. For example, you might say, would you like some lunch? And they would repeat back, would you like some lunch? Or you might see the echopraxia, which is an involuntary repetition of another person's movements or actions. And I can tell you I've had um, several of the patients that have catatonia, and it is difficult with them because they will even, you know, not eat many times. And so they can typically be, you know, very um, malodorous because they won't shower, obviously. They don't do anything on their own, but really kind of sit and stare off into space many times. And so they can be, uh, it can be quite a dangerous psychiatric disorder. Obviously, we can't let it go on long term if they're going to be not eating. The next one is melancholia, which they describe in the book as early morning awakening, anhedonia, vegetative symptoms, and symptoms worse in the morning. So it's just kind of like an overall clinical picture of what you see with depression. You'll see mixed features as well, which is another term which refers to um, elevated expansive mood, inflated self-esteem or grandiosity, more talkative, pressured speech, flood of ideas, basically those manic type symptoms we talked about. You will also see psychosis, which we've talked about before. You probably know by now means the presence of hallucinations, delusions, or a thought disorder. And we will also see seasonal sometimes attached to the features of depression because many people will experience uh, seasonally related changes in their mood called seasonal affective disorder. So now we're going to go on to the... Um, bipolar disorders as part of our lecture. I'm going to go ahead and stop the podcast and we're going to resume on, um, I'm going to post a separate one for bipolar disorders so I can break these up into two more manageable bites. Okay. Thank you for listening.